I had the opportunity to talk with a data science person at Twins. They're focused on right now is not so much the in-game analytics portion, but the contract dispensing, okay, this player's this age, he's done this in the past. There's this stat called WAR, W-A-R in baseball, and it's wins above replacement is a measure of how many extra wins you can expect from having this player compared to the league average. This is where explainable AI comes in again. You started me to go to the player's agent and say, this is the reasons why we're thinking this number. You can't say this number. Welcome to the Conversations on Applied AI podcast where Justin Grammons and the team at Emerging Technologies North talk with experts in the fields of artificial intelligence and deep learning. In each episode, we cut through the hype and dive into how these technologies are being applied to real-world problems today. We hope that you find this episode educational and applicable to your industry and connect with us to learn more about our organization at AppliedAI.mn. Enjoy! Welcome, everyone, to the Conversations on Applied AI podcast. Today we have Parker Erickson. Parker is currently a student at the University of Minnesota, pursuing a BS in computer science. He's interested in machine learning, artificial intelligence, and graph databases. He's also been a software engineering intern at Optum and has developed, among many things, a fraud detection system using graph databases and working on machine learning. The system is currently in the patent process. I also just learned, Parker, that you were an Eagle Scout. So that's, that's really awesome. You have a lot of experience uh, working with working and leading teams and, and uh, you know, lots of cool stuff. And I'm Curious to touch a little bit about that uh, during our conversation. So, welcome, Parker. Thanks. Cool. Well, I I, uh, I think I recall initially meeting you um, at one of the Coder Dojo events, like way back when you were in in, in a high school. Um, it seems like computers and technology have always been sort of a passion of of yours. I'm sort of curious to know kind of what got you into it. Yeah. So, uh, all started around I'd say fourth grade or so. Did a summer camp of Lego robotics at the Works Museum at uh, that time there in Edina. And they were like, oh, we have a first Lego League robotics team makes this robot program to do different missions. There's a research project with it. You know, it might be something that you want to join. Mm-hmm. And so from fourth grade on to uh, freshman year of high school, I was all I was on a Lego robotics team every uh, season. So that was sort of the kickstart of programming uh, for me. My mom saw an article in the newspaper about, you know, how to get kids involved in coding. And I mean, I was already on this like robotics train, but, and they mentioned Coder Dojo. I mean, it was really early in their founding. I went to a couple of events, uh, started playing around with Arduinos, Raspberry Pis, that uh, sort of area of the world really sort of just uh, loved playing with it. I right. mean, just, you know, trying different stuff out. Um, met some great people like you and Dan McCreary, Matt Gray, uh, have really sort of helped keep me interested and keep me involved in nice. the field. So Nice. It, it's, and so you talked about Arduinos and Raspberry Pis and stuff like that. Is You think there's sort of a innate passion of yours around around controlling things you know motors and and physical things or uh or you i mean it seems like you're pretty open obviously you're doing a lot of other things that are not sort of like um device related but was there a a piece of that i guess as a part of this as you sort of got into this 
it's cool to see something move that you, you know, programmed to do what you told it to do instead of, you know, just seeing text pop up on a screen. It's sort of, uh, that's why robotics and Arduino is such a great tool to get kids into uh, the field is that it's a lot more physical of, hey, I actually made that thing, you know, move or change color or whatever else um, versus, you know, hello world popped up on the screen. <laughs> great. Great. You know, sure. Um, I think that's sort of uh, one of the new initiatives at Cutter Dojo is this AI racing league donkey car uh, building thing. Uh, and I think that is, you know, a really good way to expose kids to AI because it's physical and you can see, oh, I drove it around the track. So it learned how to do this. We train a model and then we can see how well it does. Right. And right. if I'm really bad at driving, it's not going to be good at driving by itself. Right. You know. Right. Yep. Yep. For sure. Um yeah, we had Dan on a couple episodes ago, and he he talked he talked a lot about the the AI Racing League. Now, as you so you sort of attended Coder Dojo as a student, what have you, you know, sort of interested in the stuff. You've now been very much sort of like leading, right? You 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 kind of help more on the the educator teacher side, right? Yeah. So I think I started mentoring at uh, Dan's encouragement. Or- in 2014 or so so that would have been my freshman or sophomore year of high school um and it's you know taken off from there have done stayed mostly within the arduino and uh robotics you know groups that coder but it's uh, it's a lot of fun seeing the kids and helping them you know they get into rabbit holes of their own curiosity like one one kid recently um was like so how exactly does binary work and you know how much faster is this computer versus this arduino and you know i i just came out of the uh, machine architecture class in school um this past fall so it was like Okay, yeah, I can go through and, you know, try and dumb this down. Well, not dumb it down, but, you know. Make it a little more simple. Break it down to something that's understandable instead of reading this college level textbook. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, sure. Well, you know, I think this may or may not be true, but I mean, you're you're in a little bit more of the closer age category with these with these people. Um, And do you feel like that maybe has a little bit of a benefit to you? Yeah, I mean, it's, I think you have to, I think with kids, you know, they always look up to older kids. They don't necessarily look up to adults. <laughs> like, you know, there's a big age gap in between. Yeah. Or at least in their heads of like, okay, well, I'm still in school and this adult has been in the workforce for even just like two years but that's a huge difference versus oh he's just in a you know higher level of school yeah sure i think it's fun to interact with them and i always end walking away learning something new from them it's sort of amazing how does this work and you're like oh that's a good question 
Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> they can sometimes challenge you to try and figure stuff out, you know, they ask yeah. questions that you hadn't even thought of, so it can force you and to then it's, things. Then it's diving down the rabbit hole of Google with them, which, you know, it's part of the process. Yep. Yeah. Is having 50 stack overflow tabs open. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. So so you're so you're doing this mentoring, you know, you start in college then, um, you know, interested in, in computer science, obviously. Uh, taking classes. Um, did you get into any of like the first robotic stuff at all before I maybe like move on? But did you touch some of that? Uh, the Lego Robotics League is under the first umbrella. The high school that I went to, uh, the first robotics league was, or the team was not very well organized and run. Mm -hmm. um, like the activities director at our school refused to give us funding. It was just sort of a mess. So I didn't really get involved that much with it um was very much a band kid and uh did quiz bowl in high school so well cool well so then so then you started uh interning at optum uh and probably that's where you really started diving into this whole machine learning ai stuff is that is that safe to say yeah i mean i i played around with it uh you know on my own time nothing mm -hmm. really hugely inspirational like i i played around with some genetic algorithms for route planning like you could put in a list of cities and it would figure out you know the optimal path between them and just some like handwritten digit oh. classification the you know the hello worlds of ml so yeah then this past summer i was at optum we were there was a group of five interns we were on a team that was fraud finding focused so be it in mm -hmm. Uh, health savings accounts or like claims fraud, a phony doctor, phony claim, mm. you know, stuff like that. I've known Dan through Coder Dojo and he, you know, is the graph evangelist for lack of a better word. Yeah. Uh, at Optum, he introduced me to John Herkey as well. When I told him that, you know, the task, basically the task that was given to us for the five interns was like, Use machine learning, find fraud, go. <laughs> Very open ended. So yeah, it was a uh, basically a blue sky, just like come up with a solution. Wow, sounds fun. And yes, it was great. Maybe a little bit daunting too, I guess. But yes, <laughs> no. And so I was telling both Dan and John this, and they're like, you know, the number one use for graph is fraud finding, right? Mm. And I'm like. No, but <laughs> okay. And Optum's, you know, driving towards this graph platform of yeah. basically everything's integrated in this massive knowledge graph. Mm -hmm. And so they were like, well, you, you should look into it, try it out. So get the demo Docker version of Tiger Graph going okay. and model up, you know, these relationships from the data, you know, this person as you know this account things like that and they file uh, these claims for example yeah kind of what you're i mean for. can't go too far into depth with it but sure i understand yeah and so we modeled it up we also was looking into you know, different graph algorithms to you know, actually and so like some community finding algorithms we looked into <laughs> um some similarity algorithms we also looked into what we settled upon was this thing called a graph convolutional neural network Oh yeah, 
It's kind of the new, the, the new hot buzzword these days, it seems like, right? Yes. Um, and so there, there's a couple of different uh, graph-based neural networks that I haven't tried yet, but look cool. But anyways, this graph convolutional neural network, or a GCN, GCN. uses basically the adjacency matrix of this graph. Each So in this matrix, if vertex 1 is connected to vertex 2, mm-hmm. there's going to be a 1 in the matrix 1, 2, and the matrix 2, 1 if it's an undirected graph. And so these... So like a traditional convolutional neural net based on images works off of adjacent pixels yeah. and combines them and finds the edges and stuff like that. And then in those cases, basically, it decides if it's going to fire or not, kind of a, a one or a zero type thing? Yeah. Instead of adjacent pixels, it works off of nodes or vertices that are connected within that graph. Gotcha. It can classify each node based off of this adjacency matrix. The great thing is, is that since you have this graph, each each convolutional layer takes one step farther away from a given vertice in the graph. Mm -hmm. So you can see exactly, based on how many convolutional layers you have, what the algorithm looked at in the graph to classify this node. So like if you have two layers, you can look at your neighbors two hops away in that radius mm-hmm. of, okay, I have three neighbors that are directly one hop, and then each of those neighbors also have three neighbors. So you end up with, you know, those 20 some odd neighbors uh-huh. that you can go, oh, okay, this is what it saw when it classified this. Vertice. Gotcha. Gotcha. So it adds a little bit more context. It's not, you know, explainable, but you can at least distinguish a little bit more patterns. There. Sure, sure. Yeah, I think that's been the, the hardest thing, I think, just with neural nets in general is um, that I've been experienced with, with like TensorFlow is, uh, is you know, there's, there's, there's dials you can tweak and different sort of weights and measures you can do. But at the end of the day, it sort of spits it out and it's still kind of a black box, right? Like, I understand that you got from A to B, you may or may not be correct, but I don't really understand, at least visually, like how yeah. you actually how you actually did that. So the whole sort of GCN stuff sounds very fascinating to me because the whole power that I've seen in graphs too is just the whole visualization of it. Like, and you can like take all these nodes and you can hop from one to one to one to one to the other and sort of uh, in just in a traditional graph database sense, be able to trace your steps sort of through point A to point B. And like, even before we figured out this algorithm to use, and I mean, it's a published algorithm, the uh, hip and whaling is, or welling Mm -hmm. is the big, you know, go-to paper on GCNs. Um, We were just, you know, playing around with the data in AgarGraph's GUI and like we saw patterns that were like, yeah, that's fishy. Mm-hmm. And what do you know? We've already you know found them as fraud. But you know, just even just seeing it visualized of hmm, yep, yep, it it really shows how easy it is to find those types of patterns. 
Minecraft database instead sure. of joining <laughs> who knows how many tables. And sequel. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, in some ways, you know, it's a picture's worth a thousand words, I guess. And so humans are very good at looking at these relationships and picking them out. Uh, and it's and computers, of course, are better at looking at even more um, and trying to connect the dots. But I think there's a lot of intuition that we can do just visually looking at data. I can, yeah, that's, that's that's like really cool. So you focused a lot on that. Um, and graph databases were new to you, I guess, coming into into your internship last year. Um, and so what you're planning on being an intern this year too, is that, is that true? Yep. Uh, I'm also going to be at Optum this summer, uh, different team. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to be doing yet. Uh, nice. Starting two weeks, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Nice. It's going to be all virtual this year, obviously. So it'll be, that'll be an adventure within itself. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. For sure. Um, well, you know, one of the questions I ask people that come on the show is, you know, do you have a definition of artificial intelligence, you know, based on what you've done so far is, do you have like an elevator pitch or, or is it still pretty squishy? Is it just sort of still tough for you to formulate a opinion around that? You know, I, I think it really depends on how, how deep you're going into AI as a term. If you're, you know, going the Terminator, Skynet. Mm. AI, that's, I think, a long way off, just mm. even from a computing power standpoint of thing. But if you're talking narrow, classify this image, right? Right. You know, drive this car. I think that's a lot easier of a definition of it's a way to learn from the data that you give it. You know, it's the process of the way I like to think of it is everything is some form of a function mm. that you have your images or your other inputs as X and you have your out desired output as Y. Mm. AI just figures out what combinations of X give you Y is the way I like to sort of boil it down. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, and the, I guess the power of, I get machine learning and deep learning is just that we can do it so much faster these days uh, with more data. Is that, would that be a true statement? I wasn't around in the days of not enough compute, not enough data. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, I would tend to agree with that. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Uh, do you think, I guess, that then any thoughts on generalized artificial intelligence? I mean, if we get enough data of everything, is there a way to create it such in a way that it, it would just be generalized enough? Or do you feel like we're sort of always in this sort of like classify this one little thing? Because that's where it seems to break down today. Yeah, I, I've sort of started to look into reinforcement learning. Uh, watched a documentary called AlphaGo. Uh, it's free on YouTube. It's about the DeepMind team um, that beat the world champion in Go. Um, and I thought it was, you know, a really interesting take on the learning process. Uh, I'm going to play against myself or, you know, some sort of human, and I'm going to gonna give myself a reward every time I win or, you know, make this 
move, and I'm gonna give a negative reward if I leave. Right. And I mean, when you think about it, like learning to walk or something, you know, is probably along that line of reinforcing the connections in your brain to balance yourself and move yourself forward. And if you fall, the brain is probably saying, okay, well, that didn't work out. That's a negative. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of neuroscience that I don't understand in that. But I think that's, uh, from a logical standpoint, it makes sense to me that that's, you know, the way to generalize a little bit more. Totally. Totally. Yeah. So you don't, you don't program against a set of rules. It sort of learns the rules along the way. You, you, you never really say, if you bring it back to chess then too, like you don't really say a knight moves in this specific way or a bishop moves this way. It just, it, it just evaluates so many different moves and it starts to realize, oh, in order for me to win, this is yeah. what I need to do. I mean, you still have to program the rules of the environment per se of, yes, this chess piece has to move this way or whatever. Right. But other than that, I mean, just saying that the knight, you know, you know makes the L shape, that's all you give it. And then right. it plays against itself. And it plays against it. itself and it starts to realize, yeah, I, I, I don't know if it was AlphaGo or if it was chess, but I, there was a, a book that I was reading recently where, um, yeah, basically they had were able to train a, a uh, an algorithm basically to learn uh, how to play chess in four hours. And it basically, oh. I took in all the possible moves that it could in the entire universe uh, in terms of like what we knew today, like basically how all chess games started and how they all ended and all the steps that went through. And it was fascinating that they said, you know, in four hours now, this computer is essentially smarter than any chess player in the entire world. And yeah. it was just, it, and, it, and it had technically learned how to do it. Nobody sat down. I mean, they sat down and trained it. We trained it really, really fast, but nobody went through. It's not an algorithmic programming. And this is what's interesting to me as a software engineer. I've been doing this for 20 years. We're always sort of have been programming algorithms, if then conditional statements, you know, this type of stuff. And I've heard this term software 2.0, um, which is basically it's a black box and you're twisting dials and you're feeding data into this thing. And then it gives you the outputs and you're no longer coding anymore. I think that's a really cool idea where it's going. Mm -hmm. um, but there are, you know, the healthcare field, I'm sure, you know, this has been mentioned by Dan and probably John, um, you know, doctors don't just accept give them this drug as an answer. <laughs> you know, that yeah. that's the problem with the black box. Yeah. AI will have made it if we can get something to the point of deep learning, it's accuracy with the explainability. Yeah. Sure, sure. I think there's, yeah, there's this whole storytelling aspect, you know, to it where with regards to it's not just, hey, here's our in and, and here's our out. Here's how it really rel is relative to the problem. And uh, I was just talking to a, a guy recently and, you know, he said one of the things that he's been running into is, is uh, yes, it works today. Like you give it an input and you get the output and it all makes sense. A lot of people don't go back and retrain their algorithms over time to get to, to basically make sure that six months from now, it's still working the way it was in the past. And, and if it's not working anymore, then you, there's probably a lot of other data that you don't have enough data. You're actually, you had a snapshot in time where it worked, but that doesn't mean it's going to work forever. Yeah. Changes in society in the past two, three, four months will have uh, sort of proven that, look, 
these are very brittle systems. Mm. The data collected in the past, you know, three months of the pandemic, you know, there's been nobody can just predict a pandemic out of the blue. And go, <laughs> okay, this is. I mean, humans can't do that. We ha- we've lived through nothing like this before. We can't say how you know supply and demand is going to change. We can't say really anything, mm-hmm. much less expect an algorithm that we fed in semi-clean data in regards to, look, this is a, an event that the world has never seen before. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the unknown unknowns, I guess. Yes. I, I, there's a book that Nate Silver put out called The Signal and the Noise, and uh, he, he talks a lot about that in there, where there are cases instances where this just wasn't even thought of this just wasn't even put in the model so we're sort of in a new completely different era it'll be it'll be interesting how that how this spurs change if it does spurs change in the algorithm you know the deep learning machine learning community sure look these these are brittle compared to world events that's a great great point i want to focus a little bit on maybe a project that you've worked on uh, just personally, um, I think you've you uh, you've mentioned in the past you're going to be speaking at an upcoming event of ours on a pitch prediction algorithm. I'm curious to know a little bit more. Could could you talk a little bit about that that project and um, you know everything from getting the data to like is this going to improve over time? I don't know, give give, me, give give our listeners a little bit of background on this and and what you worked on. I worked on this over winter break mostly and you know, spilling into the spring semester. Essentially, I was, when the news of the Astros sign-stealing scandal uh-huh. uh, broke, I was like, do you really need a, well, I guess to back up, uh-huh. over this, this past off-season of baseball, it was revealed that the Astro, Houston Astros were stealing opposing teams' pitching signals uh, through a camera in center field that would look at the catcher's uh, signals to the pitcher. Mm-hmm. And then they would communicate whether a fastball or not a fastball would be coming based on banging a trash can in the dugout. Right. Yep. I remember hearing about that. The title of the blog article that I wrote was, Do You Really Need Trash Cans? <laughs> sort of in response to this whole thing. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, can you just, you know, in some situations, me as a layperson baseball fan can go, oh, this, there was a breaking pitch low and outside, you know, they might go with a fastball on the inner half of the plate and maybe up to throw them off. I'm like, okay, well, if I can do that, can machine learning do it? Mm. The great thing about baseball is that they have a system called StatCat. And so every single pitch is recorded into this data set to every single hitter, you know, the runners on base, you can get what the previous pitch was because you can just look at the previous pitch entry. Um, and this is all that. open, open. You can just yeah. go to a website and download all this data. What, yeah. what, what formats it in? Is it all like a CSV file or something? Pretty much. Okay. Um, there's a Python package actually called uh, High Baseball, I believe. Oh, yeah. And so you can basically say, I want all games in between these range of dates. 
and it downloads it for you and you get a pandas data frame. Like it's, <laughs> it's about as easy as it can be. Nice. Um, but you can get, you know, the, this pitch, the pitch thrown was a curveball, it was a slider, it was a fastball, you know, whatever pitch it was. Hmm. As long as well as the velocity of this pitch. Oh, neat. Okay. If you really wanted to dive into it, you can also get like the spin rate off of the pitcher's hand of the ball because it, there's cameras in the MLB stadiums that track the ball. Um, they might be radar, actually. I'm not exactly sure, but. Sure. Yeah. Tons During of data. Flight. Yeah. No, I yeah. remember. I basically narrowed it down to, you know, the running situation of who's on base, the previous pitch, the score, and the inning, something like that. Okay. Because I didn't want, I mean, nobody's going to be able to predict a pitch by looking at the spin rate in real time and <laughs> communicating it while the pitch is coming towards home. Right. Right. Um, so it had to be the data that was you know available before each pitch and so basically what it boiled down to uh, i fed this into a neural network i tried some other machine learning models with it as well um but they they didn't pan out very well and i was able to train a model with about 75 percent accuracy it was determined that the astros um had about a 93 percent accuracy rate on mm -hmm. stealing the sign um, so a far cry from, you know, what I was managing to do with machine learning. I mean, it was debatable whether the Astros really gained that much benefit from it in the right. first place. Right. Because, I mean, even if you know a fastball is coming, it can be anywhere in a strike zone. And it's still hard just to get a bat on a 93, 95 mile per hour ball fastball. being thrown at you. Sure, sure. So, you know. The jury is still sort of out whether it really had any uh, effect. Positive Some impact. say that it did have a little, but it was pretty negligible. Um, did they? But yeah. I, did, did I, you know, I'm just, I was wondering if anybody went back and took a listen to audio from some of these games. And, you know, I remember my wife, she's an avid baseball fan. Um, so, so am I, but not nowhere near to the extent that she is. But she had said that they had gone back and they were listening to and watching prior games. And it was like you could hear this garbage can being shaken at various times. And sure enough, you know, fastballs came in. But I don't know if that was ever analyzed by anybody as far as you know, or if that's another piece of data you could bring into this. Yeah, so that's that's about where uh, the 93% accuracy metric came Okay, is that somebody did go through the entire... 2017 season and listened to every single game <laughs> that the Astros were in yes. every pitch that was thrown. Yes. And basically was listening for a trash can bang and marked it down. If it was a fastball. Sure. Yeah. So there's a couple of different ways that I'd like to take this in the future. And the first is really only takes in the previous pitch. I would like to, Use like a LSTM net or some sort of sequence neural network that can handle a sequence of pitches. So all the ones sort of leading up to it. Yeah. Right. That's where so LSTMs like, are powerful is you can get a whole range of things to, to pull into that one prediction. Is that true? Yeah. Like uh, get the entire app back. So like not only 
just the pitch previous to it, but if this is a five, six, seven pitch at bat, mm-hmm. get all those pitches into a form where it can make a prediction and see if that has any helpful, you know, even pitchers, it could specify, you know, find pitchers that are using this se- the same sequence of pitches more often or, you know, patterns within that would be you know more helpful yeah yeah for sure you got me thinking about i mean i'm sure pitchers have signature whether they know it or not they probably gravitate towards certain sequences of pitches right start off with a fastball you know most of the time curveball here that or the other stuff and that's probably what a lot of those signs are <laughs> that they're yeah. that they've they, of course teams are spending a lot of money on analytics and they're using the stats cast data obviously and trying to uh, build the best algorithm and hire the best data scientists that they can for them just to just infer to any hitter, you know, you're probably going to be getting this coming at you, regardless if a garbage can bangs or not. Right. Yeah. A lot of interesting things that can be done based on just the data that's out there. Yeah. No. So uh, another place where I want to look into is like sort of in the AlphaGo realm. Okay. Let's see how we can best manage our lineup, you know, have a baseball simulator. How how do we organize our lineup? How do we manage our pitching staffs so their wear is lower or, you know, less injury prone, but we still, you know, maybe the best way to go is having nine pitchers each do an inning. Right. Maybe it's not having a starter go, you know, six innings, seven innings, and closing it off with some relievers at the end. Yeah. Wow. Um AlphaGo, there was this one move that basically was astounding to the entire Go community. And now I'm not a Go player, so I can't really explain it. Right. But there was a moment of creativity by the computer of going, well, that doesn't make sense. You know, to the traditional Go community, that ended up to be a genius move. Totally. Yep. You know, so... What if we apply a baseball simulator, apply this to managing those lineups, managing pitching matchups and see what happens? Sure, sure. No, I, that's yeah. You, you, as you were speaking, you totally made me think about, um, you know, as the coach, they need to create a, a lineup for the team. Um, they're basing that off of, I mean, I think best gut and like okay here's our usual it, it's probably it probably is also a little bit more with regards to who is resting and who's not and stuff like that rather than you know gosh what if you shifted the lineup I don't, and i honestly don't know if it's possible to shift the lineup during the game a lot but it was just like you know you brought in a new pitcher now i'm going to completely rejigger this thing you know or or um or you know this pitcher has pitched this way for the first inning or so i'm just going to shift up the team now because based on the way he's pitching today he's not doing the same things that I thought he would when I started the game. So could you evolve, you know, your, your, you know, your, your, uh, your players that are up to bat during the game. And that would be like, who's, who's ever thought of that before? <laughs> I guess. Yeah. I had the opportunity to talk with the data science person at the twins. They're focused on right now is not so much the in-game analytics portion, but the, contract dispensing okay this player's this age he's done this in the past there's this stat called war 
uh, WAR in baseball, and it's mm-hmm. wins above replacement. So it basically uh, is a measure of how many extra wins you can expect from having this player compared to the league average. Mm, wow. Essentially. Uh-huh. Their, way, it, their focus is getting the best contract deals based on okay, this player is projected to do this war in the next three, four years. You know, sure, sure. Or re, renegotiation. And this is where explainable AI comes in again, is that you started me to go to, you know, player's agent and say, this is the reasons why we're thinking this number. Yep. Yeah, um, exactly. You can't say this number. <laughs> yeah, we have to have some data behind it. It's, it, you know, I guess if you if you compare it to basketball, it's like, you know, look, I, I wonder what the war score would be for Michael Jordan, right? But it, it has to be phenomenal. You know, you're basically looking for these people that are that are aces, and because of them, you're you you are you you can point at certain wins that are going to happen, and they're probably looking for those same in baseball. And there's probably certain yeah. players, obviously, that those are guys that are getting paid the big bucks because they actually have an influence over the outcome of the game. Yeah, or you like take look at the Moneyball approach of okay, what players are the most influential that we can pay the least amount of money for? Because we're, you know, the Oakland A's and have a low budget. Right. And, you know, what's the maximum number of maximum number of wins we can get with this budget? Right. Out of that person, for example. Yeah. What's gonna give us general AI is gonna be a combination thereof. So, so yeah, so very interesting project, and I'm super excited to hear sort of more about it. Uh, and by the time this this airs, we might actually have already you might have already had the meetup, but we'll be recording it, and I'll be, I'll be sure to share it in the liner notes and all the stuff that we've been talking about uh, for this for this podcast. So, um, one of the things that I did want to touch on a little bit was just uh, I, mean, I don't know. I guess any any advice or or classes or books that you've read or um, you know, meetups or other groups and stuff like that. Obviously, you mentioned Kodoro Dojo. I guess people that are uh, your age or below, or even changing careers, whatever, uh, that are interested in sort of this this field. What 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 would you tell them? Yeah. Um, so as far as books, uh, the Master Algorithm by uh, Pedro Domingos, um, really good overview of sort of the five different. Uh, camps of machine learning um it's you know the deep learning neural net guys and the decision tree and the you know more traditional like linear regression uh genetic algorithms and like it sort of gives you a good overview of all those and then sort of makes the case that what's going to give us general AI is going to be a combination thereof. Um, and I would throw reinforcement learning, which was a good experience to get, um, as well as our, our final project was predicting a house price, house selling price. Uh, mm-hmm. So we had to, as a group project, we had to uh, scrape Zillow for uh you know, the information like how many bedrooms, bathrooms, whatever. We rec- 
requested access to the Minnesota Department of Revenue's uh, sales uh, records because that's all really public information. You just have to access, request access for the database and you can mm. download a ton of XML files. Mm. Um, and we use that for like the addresses of recent properties as well as the actual selling price. Nice. Um, and then we also scraped Zillow for image uh, for images. And so we would take the preview image for Zillow and run it through a uh, image classifier, well, not classifier, but uh, a CNN mm-hmm. um, to predict a house house's price. Um, if you and that by itself basically got within about eighty thousand dollars on average. Oh, okay. Um, so I mean, it could predict, you know, a shack from a mansion. But okay, <laughs> but it wasn't super pinpoint. Like you should list no. your house for this. You know, yeah. if I if I get eighty thousand dollars below what I'm asking, that I wouldn't be happy. No. Um, but then we integrated also realtor descriptions using some NLP as oh. well as the latitude, longitude, um, bedrooms, bathrooms, things like that that were easily to put out to vector. So we put in the NLP prediction and the CNN prediction into this vector along with the bedrooms, bathrooms, the average school rating, things like that, and pass that through a neural network. Um, and that gave us about 45 grand in air, I think. Mm-hmm. Getting and, better. You know, we were like, oh, that's still sort of not great. But then we, we also, when we were scraping Zillow, we scraped the Zestimate, the Zillow estimate of <laughs> the house value. Yeah. And we're like, let's see how far off we are from that. <laughs> and we we're only a grand away. Oh, wow. All and we're right. like, okay, well, I think this is good enough for a two, two or three week project versus, you know, a team of engineers, probably some PhDs for this company that's, you know, had this feature for years. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, <laughs> it's, you, you probably uncovered how they calculated this estimate, you know, uh, in one way or another. I, I would argue at least this estimate on my house uh, and other ones I've seen have been have been off. So like you said, I think they've been off by by a lot. I'm like, where are they coming up with that number from? But uh, that's that's very interesting, I guess. Yeah. yeah. No, we're know. like tracking down, you know, how can we 45 to 50 grand is still like atrocious. Yeah. 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 You know, and then you're like, oh, we're, <laughs> we're not far off at all from you know, probably the experts in the field. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Well, that's, yeah. So that's fun. So you get a chance to play around with spark, like you're saying. Yeah. The underlying tool. Yeah. And it was, you know, more of a pipelining, you know, getting the data, data all the way to the end. Um, Oh, the scraping of the data, uh, I wasn't personally working on it, but Zillow has really good anti-scraping measures. And so the solution that we came up, they came up with was Google using the Google cache version of the website. Mm. Okay. So don't even hit their site. 
Yeah. Just hit the cache. Yeah. But instead of, and then Google getting that directly from Google was having some issues. So mm -hmm. it was putting the address into Bing, requesting the Google cache from the Bing results, <laughs> and then scraping that. Oh, sure. Wow. That's convoluted. Yeah. And then <laughs> it was like spread across like four, the like five uh, lab machines. It was yeah. just, I'm like, <laughs> that just sounds not fun, but no. thanks for making it work. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, that's, that's well, I guess, as I've seen with a lot of these uh, data science AI projects, I mean, it's, it, it feels like uh, a lot of the work is just in getting the data and cleaning the data and formatting the data and filtering out the garbage that's still stuck in the data, you know, yeah. to then finally run it through an algorithm to then uh, make a prediction, which oftentimes it's still not right. So now you got to go back and get more data. It's it's just there's a whole, like you said, pipelining. That, that That's a good word for it. Yeah. And that was, that was, Sarah, the issue with the start of the internship, too, was like, well, number one, we didn't get the right computer, so we're waiting two weeks for that. And then, you know, but during that time, we're like going, okay, what data, A, do we have access to as interns? And B, would actually be able to help us do this. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think actually having those two weeks to figure that out was really helpful in once we got the right tools, we can just hit the ground running and go um, gotcha. with, with the actual machine. Sure, sure. Very good. Well, this has been this has been a great conversation. I mentioned at the beginning about being a uh, Eagle Scout. I, I'm curious if you have any thoughts or perspectives on on sort of how that has helped you in your career, if if any. It's kind of yeah. out of left field a little bit, but I'd be curious to know. I mean, I think, well, so for my Eagle Scout capstone project, um, I built a portable mini golf course uh, for the city of Plymouth. Hmm. It was, uh, they bring it to events, um, you know, city events that has a ecological theme. So there's like one with hands for recycling and one with buckthorn for, you know, removing that, yeah. things like that. Um, and I think what was, I mean, the most valuable learning experience was the communication and the, you know, team leadership of the whole thing mm -hmm. was, you know, I need to show the process and what and how this should be assembled. I need to communicate that clearly, you know, how to manage a team, you know, 30 volunteers to build mm -hmm. these six holes. Oh, let's break them up into groups of five instead of having them all work on one hole at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, just the logistical side of things, I think was the greatest learning experience out of that. And the, the communication of a project is huge. I mean, be it in the business world, in the software world, or yeah. your Eagle Scout project, you know, saying, okay, we built this thing. Mm -hmm. Here's how to use it, or here's how to replicate it, 
or, you know, here's the choices that we made. Being able to communicate that clearly, I think, is really important. Um, so I, I think that's sort of the, what I most got out of that. Nice, nice, cool. Yeah, no, I, that makes complete sense. Uh, after running my own business and running software teams and being in technology, uh, yeah, it's not all about the tech, really. It's it really is about communication. Uh, as you're running the project, um, staying in touch with the team, staying in touch with, in my case, a lot of clients, um, being very clear on where you are with regards to uh, solving the problem, and then once the problem is, I, guess, I wouldn't say solved, but at least you've delivered a, a possible solution then being able to communicate that, whether it be to a, a, a manager, uh, to a, to the team or the engineer or out to the client. It's just, yeah, things make or break based on communication. And uh, getting those skills early on sounds like it really had a, a fantastic, um, uh, like a positive impact, I guess, on your career. So that that's really cool to hear. Yeah, no, I, I, I thought it was, I mean, scouting, I think, is a really good experience that you know leadership experience and the the experience of having to communicate you know to both peers as well as your adult leader you know, right in the truth right cool well so how do people uh get a hold of you parker it's the best uh, way. linkedin my email uh parker.erickson30 at gmail.com um i also have a medium blog some other stuff but that's all linked on linkedin so cool well i'll uh, be sure to, i'll be sure to include these links here in the notes on the show once we finally broadcast it or put it out for the public sounds good is there anything anything i missed anything else you wanted to bring in or or you know kind of end off with any final thoughts um not really thanks for having me um i thought uh yeah, that's about it. Thanks for having me. Thanks uh, for putting it together. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I appreciate you being on. And I I, I wish you all the best in your career. I know you're going to do well. You know, you've, you've, you've already uh, done some amazing things uh, already as your second year in, in college. And uh, very excited to track you over the next, uh, you know, 10 years or so and <laughs> see where things uh, land. I mean, um, always very excited to promote and help um, upcoming uh, technologists and entrepreneurs and stuff like that. So I appreciate you being on, on, on the show and uh, definitely going to stay in touch, Parker. So yeah, thanks again. Thank you. Take care. You've listened to another episode of the conversations on applied AI podcast. We hope you are eager to learn more about applying artificial intelligence and deep learning within your organization. You can visit us at AppliedAI.mn to keep up to date on our events and connect with our amazing community. Please don't hesitate to reach out to Justin at AppliedAI.mn if you are interested in participating in a future episode. Thank you for listening.